Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We have a lot on our plate today, so we hope you've got the time and we hope you enjoy. We will speak with Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star, Joe Cressy from the Toronto Board of Health. Got to get into a lot with 5 to 11 vaccine windows opening for parents to get their, well, offspring in that age group vaccinated and potentially stop the spread in elementary schools. We'll talk a lot about that on Friday's show uh, with Ryan Imgrund. Uh, So that's something to advance for the live show tomorrow. So, so much to get to. We appreciate you listening. Thanks for finding us. Toronto Today begins now. Uh, This week has flown by. It flew by for uh, friends in the United States because it's three days. It's already over. And they've got today off and tomorrow as well. I, when I first moved to the States, they, you know, I'm like, okay, so we come back in to work on Friday. No, you don't. Yeah, but is it a holiday? No. Well, what is that? We have Easter Monday. It's not really Easter Monday. Easter Sunday is Easter Sunday. Easter Monday is Easter Monday. But Easter Monday somehow is a thing. And we knew from a very young age that we have that day off. Most of us do anyway. Banks do and you know, government officials do. My sister uh, and uh, husband uh, in Ottawa do kind of government work. And I'm like, my God, the holidays you people get, the pensions, the holidays. Who wouldn't work for the government if they could? But uh, nonetheless, I digress. Um, nonetheless, they, uh, the, you know, w- we don't get the Friday U.S. Thanksgiving thing. So we got to figure this out. Either we loop our Canadian Thanksgiving into Friday, into the Monday, and we still got good weather. We get better weather than they do. Let's be very, very clear about that. I think it would stink to have a four-day weekend and have it just like snow or rain like today. That pushes us indoors, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And uh, and you get a scenario. So we ought to figure this out in October. Either extend it out and have something called Thanksgiving Tuesday, like Toonie Tuesday, like with the movies, and how the Jays used to do it when they, uh, when they couldn't get people to come watch them play unless Roy Halladay was pitching for like nine years in a row. So either do that. Or you loop it into a Friday. Now, now listen, I'm sure people, I'm sure some of you take Fridays off early. You know, some of you that uh, that don't even want to come back to work in the workplace. Some of you people, you people who do that stuff and, and don't get on the roads like the rest of us sweating it out and grinding out commutes and stopping for $4 coffees. I, okay, $2 coffees times two, getting two coffees worth a total of $4. I'm sure you people, you people take some of Friday off on Thanksgiving weekend while the West rest of us are just, you know, down in the salt mines. I don't know if there are salt. I think there are salt mines. I think those things actually exist. Um, I'm going to come back around to some new but not so new advice coming from the uh, head of Ontario's science table. Um, fantastic stuff. Really helpful stuff. Welcome to, um, you know, last year at this time when many of us were saying this. It's awesome to see. But let me start here with uh, Ahmad Arbery. You probably saw and, it's, you know, it's amazing how much sometimes the oxygen gets, uh, you know, the, the oxygen flow is from news stories from the states. I'm conscious of it and I'm conscious of not doing too much. Um, you know, U.S. politics. Though I'm fascinated by it. I, I studied it in school. It's uh, it's been a mini obsession of mine, if anything, when I was doing sports radio on, uh, you know, highly successful, highly rated shows there. Um, yeah, I, w- I would probably in- try and inject some of that into the show consciously when it, when I thought it really mattered. You can imagine being on in Detroit the morning after the Bush Gore election in 2000. That's a big deal. 
You can imagine even post-Trump Hillary Clinton. You're still talking about it. It's all you can think about. It's all you can talk about. But we've had two criminal trials, and OJ, obviously. I wasn't working in the industry when the OJ trial happened. I think my first job had just started by the time the civil trial had wrapped up, and that's early 1997. But we've seen two cases plus a terrorist incident, and it tells me that, yeah, uh, I see I see you and I hear you, and even people who text the show are very adamant that there's there's just two media units right now. There's the left and there's the right, and not much is coming up the middle for you. And I have empathy there because that's how I want to get informed. That's how I want to be um, educated, if you will. Things I don't know or things I already know that can be enhanced. And from the Kyle Rittenhouse coverage to the verdict last Friday, to yesterday's verdict regarding Ahmad Arbery, I see uh, more than uh, enough scenarios to understand that everybody feels a little different about this. And to me, the essence of the law was probably carried out properly in both cases. And that doesn't mean that I would defend Kyle Rittenhouse's actions. That doesn't mean that I would defend who he is, why he was there, what kind of trouble he was looking into. But he doesn't also write the laws that allow for open carry. He doesn't write the laws that allow for self-defense. I did see via video, and everyone documented the video in the Arbery case was critically important. I did see a scenario, and I think you did too, where, as, as we did with Arbery, where Kyle Rittenhouse was attacked and then responded. Do I think the response was too harsh? Yes. Do I think the response still merited some form of punishment? Maybe yes also. But that's not how the legal system works. That's not how the law operates. Similarly to yesterday, all three defendants were found guilty of murdering a 25-year-old man who had no weapon on him, was running empty-handed through a Georgia subdivision, but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, according to three men who are now known as murderers. Even though one man pulled the trigger, the other two are accomplices, and they all face a mandatory sentence of life in prison. But I think it's, it's interesting to note the coverage and the importance of video in both these cases. It happened in Georgia. It happened with 11 white people on the jury. Most legal experts look and say there's a lot longer odds of getting a conviction, let alone bringing it to trial without video. Why do they have video? Because one of the yutzes, who's now considered a murderer, decided to videotape what was actually happening. I mean, he was basically the purveyor of his own demise. There's no other way to put it. So as I document, this happened in February 2020, right before COVID, right before COVID. And these men face a mandatory sense of life in prison, 23 guilty verdicts all together. And for the parents of the now deceased Ahmad Arbery, you can imagine the feeling. Doesn't bring your son back. It brings back ghosts and shadows, and you had to heard character assassination after character assassination by defense attorneys who may have been as well, you know, miscast to handle this particular case as the prosecution seemed to handle prosecuting Kyle Rittenhouse. They couldn't have made more mistakes. I mentioned last week in high pro or earlier in the week for high profile uh, prosecutors, 
the last time I saw something, you know, in a, in a highly publicized criminal trial, civil trials are different, that was handled so badly was probably Ray Lewis, the NFL star. They charged him with murder one. How are they ever going to prove murder one? I remember saying that at the time. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence here. You're not you're going to find intent and planning and malfeasance and uh, the the desire to carry through murder in the first degree on Ray Lewis. You can't even put him to the scene of the crime. You can't even put any of his DNA near the two victims. I know he threw his clothes, his bloody clothes into a dumpster, but you're not going to be able to get him on murder one. Try for a lesser charge. And there was some of the same criticism here for how the prosecution went after Arbery's murderers. But it ended up working out in terms of favor of what I would consider justice. Here's Laura Coates last night on CNN talking about the verdict. This was absolutely the right call. And this is the essence of justice. However, we are talking about the loss of life of a 25-year-old jogger whose mother's been inside that courtroom, whose father's been inside that courtroom, where the final thing that the jury saw was who Ahmaud Arbery was before he encountered these three men, three strangers, who felt entitled for him to stop simply because they thought that they had some authority to get somebody who was jogging to stop and talk to him. And when he didn't, they pulled out a shotgun and he was shot and killed. And remember in that video, which is so graphic and so horrible to look at, even then he tried to run and the adrenaline was kicking in and he fell again. Remember, this is somebody who tried to run away for five minutes mm. until he was cornered, could run no more. And it was the idea of having all three men accountable. Yeah, all three men ended up being charged with murder. There wasn't a witness. Nobody was able to roll over on each other in uh, in testimony and, you know, turn uh, on the other guy. Laura Bazelon was on Oakley's show yesterday. John Oakley, of course, between 3 and 6 o'clock. And she documented that the video was critical because it didn't look like this was even going to be brought to trial the first time around. I do. I think there was a fair amount of that, actually. The first district attorney who passed on the case was subsequently indicted because she tried to interfere and stop the arrest of Travis McMichael. She showed favoritism to his father, Gregory McMichael, and she was, in fact, voted out of office. So I think absolutely there was malfeasance here. Yeah. And that said, listen, there's more than enough occasion to uh, I think the waters have cooled. The temperatures settled down about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. And many people who play this objectively said, the jury got got it right. You can debate about open carry. You can debate about Rittenhouse's character. But none of that makes him guilty of murdering anyone. None of it does. There is a right to self-defense. He was attacked. In fact, he was hammered over the head with a skateboard. You and I might react differently. You and I, without a gun, might also not be alive right now. You can make that case. You can make that case. And clearly, that was going through the head of the jury at the given time. Um, it all starts today. It really does. Uh, clinics in hospitals, city-run clinics. Lots of pharmacies have this shot. Doctor's offices. I thought that was critical that parents be able to have conversations with familiar faces and voices, as in their own family doctors. And uh, the city of Toronto in a great place, in a great place in terms of vaccinating those who desire a vaccine for 5 to 11 years old. Joe Cressy is, of course, part of Toronto's Board of Health and a city councillor as well. You're always generous with your time. Thank you very much for making it this morning. I appreciate you coming on. 
You bet, Greg. Also happy to chat about Thanksgiving football, if you, me, and Bruce Arthur <laughs> want to talk about that afterwards. Do the Lions get their uh, their first win? Maybe only win of the season. This looks like the most obvious win, Joe. If they don't get it now, you never know whether they'll get one at all. I think they should be satisfied with the tie. They, they, <laughs> it's not a single. It's not a complete losing season with that tie. <laughs> do two, well, do two ties make a win is a key there question. I don't are. know. It's like, do two wrongs make a right in politics? They never do. You, you know this already. <laughs> um, I mentioned this, um, the organization that we've got, the knowledge that we've got, um, the confidence that we've got. We were in a very uncertain time when people, adults like you and me and many of our listeners started to get their first vaccines uh, in February and March. Um, This is something parents had waited for. They want to feel the confidence as much as anything to gain a lot uh, back of what they've lost and they can start doing it today. Absolutely. So today, Team Toronto Kids, which is our comprehensive kids vaccination campaign, rolls out across the city. And what we really have done is taken all the lessons we've learned, building off all the tools we've developed over the last year to put this vaccination campaign to work for our kids. Specifically, that means having an easy and accessible clinic model. Uh, Starting today, yes, at five city clinics, we'll have thousands, tens of thousands of kids getting their vaccines. But those are just one part of a much broader system. Uh, Hundreds of pharmacies are administering uh, vaccines to kids. Hospital clinics are. More than 110 doctor's offices and family health teams have signed up. And, of course, we're rolling out school-based clinics starting in in targeted high-risk neighborhoods. Those begin today. We're trying to bring the vaccines to where kids are in as easy and accessible a format. And, my goodness, I'm glad it's finally here because I just want to see these kids safe. Oh, and the one thing I think I've all I know this I've always given the city credit for is they tried to focus on the hotspots. You did this uh, as specifically as well as an individual and as part of the board of health. You looked and thought, where is it a little more? Where, where's the temperature a little hotter? Where are the fires? How do we put them out? And we did that by turning focus. Um, and I, I know the mayor did this as well, pointing towards the province and saying these are the areas we need help in. These are the areas we need more vaccines for. Um, the same kind of strategy, quite obviously, right out of the gate here with kids and vaccines yeah what are the there are five pillars to team toronto kids accessible clinics uh public education public outreach partnerships and equity equity is our fifth key pillar so here's what that means on the ground every single parent and caregiver of a 5 to 11 year old in our city every single one you can access a booking uh, whether that's at a city site, you can go online right now at toronto.ca slash COVID-19, or you can go to your local pharmacy. But every parent can access a booking. But we're bringing increased clinics and increased resources right out of the gate on day one to 34 hard-hit neighborhoods. We've identified the neighborhoods where risk is greater. We're bringing 230 in-school clinics straight to those neighborhoods first. We've partnered with local community organizations. We have neighborhood ambassadors on the ground. Because, listen, here's the bottom line. For many parents, and, you know, my, listen, my siblings are part of this, mm. uh, we know how to go online and book an appointment. We might be able to take our kids on the subway or in a car ride down to the MTCC or Scarborough Town Center. But there's a lot of parents don't have that. There's a digital divide, don't have that access. Uh, Maybe there's mistrust in government institutions. Maybe they just can't get the time off work. And so we've tried to bring vaccines directly to those neighborhoods starting today. We're not waiting three weeks to see if disparities and inequities emerge. We want to stop them before they begin. 
But again, this isn't an either or. It's not all the kids in the city or those most at risk. In fact, we've built a campaign which is both and. We want to tackle equity and ensure universal access today. Are these areas, Joe Cressy, by the way, joining us, chair of the Toronto Board of Health on Toronto today, are these areas where you've identified clearly, are they areas where adults aren't very well vaccinated? And, you know, again, we, uh, we've we talked about access, we've talked about barriers, we've talked about essential work. Those were major issues for me, certainly so, in February, March, April, and May. By now, and, and I, think, I, think, I, I think this is logical, this just feels more like, pure and utter hesitancy or rejection. So how do we vaccinate kids whose own parents won't get vaccinated? How do we have those conversations? Yeah, well, and this is where, listen, we we know that um, when it comes to, to vaccination and especially vaccination for our kids, parents have a lot of questions and mm-hmm. that's good and that's natural. I mean, listen, these are our kids. You want to make sure that it's as safe as possible. So here's what here's what we say at a high level and here's what we're doing at a high level. These are, for kids, the most studied vaccines in history, uh, truly. And they have been approved uh, by the experts. And in the States, 3 million kids aged 5 to 11 have already got these vaccines without a single significant adverse event. That should give parents confidence. But it's not just, you know, me as an elected official trying to give parents confidence. We have a series of on-the-ground partnerships with trusted local leaders and agencies who are engaging with parents, hosting local webinars and town halls. Uh, With SickKids, we've partnered to set up a parent's hotline. Parents can call the SickKids hotline to have a private phone call and consultation with a pediatric physician because we know the parents have these questions and and we want to get them those answers and we're going to try to be clear but we also know sometimes they want to get that answer from the doctor they trust or the community leader they know not necessarily me talking through the radio i think that data from the u.s you brought up i was going to bring it up with you it's really reassuring it's really comforting i'm trying to amplify it as much as possible and i know frustrating right for parents going oh come on they're a couple weeks ahead of us now but that real world data is significant because any issues there were with any adult vaccines any any sort of as as it were hangover side effect or any concern about astrazeneca doctors scientists they all said you're going to notice this in a day or two after you're going to notice this a week or so after these aren't there's no long-term effects period so seeing all that real world data that you mentioned I know for parents I've spoken to, they've swelled with confidence knowing that the states have been vaccinating kids for 21 days and literally no, no bad news stories. And, you know, you know, sometimes how the media operates. There would be if there were problems. Well, and listen, in in public health, uh, one of the principles is vaccine uptake is only as strong as vaccine confidence. And that means mm-hmm. we need to be really open and really transparent. And, and in our country, in Canada and in the United States, that means public reporting on any and all side effects or adverse effects, because we want the public to know. We want to make sure that the vaccines are indeed as safe as possible. We want the public to know if there are side effects. And what we've seen with the youth vaccines, 3 million delivered already in the States over 21 days, not a single significant adverse effect. And what I can tell you is from a public health perspective, if, if there are effects, they will be shared and then they will be further studied because fundamentally this is about safety. Uh, no, but listen, Greg, vaccines work. I mean, yeah. today in the city of Toronto, we have 15 people in hospital due to COVID-19. 15. To put that in context, last spring, it was in the thousands. And so we are on the cusp here 
of, of beating this pandemic and moving to a more epidemic state where mm. we have built up population protection while the virus may be circulating. The number of unvaccinated population will be small enough that we will be able to maintain a level of broad protection and reopening. We are on the cusp and the kids vaccine for 200,000 newly eligible kids will help us to get to the finish line here. Joe Cressy is our guest. Uh, you can go on the City of Toronto's website, find out a lot more about where you can have these conversations. I'm so glad he's brought that up. Now, back in middle of September, uh, the Board of Health, Dr. Davila, John Tory, they, they were adamant. They wanted vaccines mandatory for kids 5 to 11. They wanted to ask the province this. I, I, I didn't love that concept because I think those conversations are necessary. I do think, Joe, it'll be mandated at some point in time, maybe even by next fall. I thought now was the wrong time. Was that was that ambitious? Was that a mistake in retrospect to ask the province to do that? Oh, I don't think so. Um, so under the um, Immunization of Sp- Schools Pupils Act, we currently have nine infectious diseases um, for which vaccines are required in our school system. Measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus. Uh, there's nine of them already required, and that's been the case for decades. And, and so the suggestion that for this highly um, prevalent and contagious COVID-19 vaccine, that that would be added to that list, I think is grounded in good public health policy. Uh, what I will tell you is I think what's transpired here, of course, is that there has been a big public discussion and debate, and in some ways, some have tried to portray vaccines as a new and controversial um, tool in medical intervention, but they're not. And so yeah. I, and I think this for me is when we take the, the controversy and the politics out of it and just talk about the science, it's kind of like mandates. You know, 97% of all City of Toronto staff are now vaccinated. There was all sorts of dis- debate about mandates. Well, they work. And it's the same with in schools. They do work. And so, you know, in time, I fully suspect that the province will move in that direction. Uh, I don't think it's a it's a bad decision to wait to build confidence before a mandate. Yeah. I think your suggestion on that. It's, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a, a bad assumption or suggestion. And I, th- I think that's what we're seeing play out. But at its core, uh, including the COVID-19 vaccine alongside nine others that we already require and have for decades in our schools is just good public policy. Last thing, uh, I know Kristen Wong-Tam will step aside from vice chair on the Toronto Board of Health, which you are the chair of. Um, She wrote a a column in the Toronto Sun. She clarified some of those comments. What was your reaction to the column? What's your reaction to her pending departure? Oh, listen, Councillor Wong-Tam, and I got to tell you, she has been, as everybody in in the city has been, a a strong partner in this vaccination effort. I mean, Mm -hmm. this Team Toronto approach, it's not a slogan, it's not some tagline. Team Toronto truly is what we've seen. Councillors, healthcare bodies, schools, paramedics, pharmacists, we've all rallied together. Uh, And and Councillor Wong-Tam did, uh, as she acknowledged and apologized for, inadvertently shared and mistakenly shared some misinformation. she she recognized it. She apologized for it, and just to ensure that there was that all steps were taken to to protect the the principle of science at the forefront. She's made the decision to to carry on on the board, but not as the vice chair. And listen, it's uh it's back to Team Toronto here. I mean, yeah. I think to yeah. her credit and to all of us. We got to rally together to get these kids in our city vaccinated and stay focused on that. I wish you the best in those goals. Thank you so much for the time, Joe. You know, I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for coming on. Anytime, Greg. Thanks, man. There's Joe Cressy uh, joining us, uh, chair of the Toronto Board of Health. Well, that leads us to what I want to talk about now, which, again, is the 
ridiculous, ridiculous uh, scenarios where we've got intimidation and threats and whatnot. I know, I know for the, the medical professionals, the epidemiologists that come on this show or other shows on the station, um, you know, they're taking risks, okay? It's it's risky to be bold. It's risky to to say something and, and people feel their freedoms are limited, but there's certain things that aren't right. There were uh, elements of intimidation against the uh, Peel Region Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, who we've had on and I think has been a real champion. And he's advocated for things I agree with. And I pushed him on stuff. And I said, are you sure about this? That's how this goes. That's how all of this goes. Uh, the mayor of Brampton is Patrick Brown. He's been uh, kind with his time with us. And uh, Mayor Brown, it's great to have you on again. As I'm saying, it's one of those scenarios where Enough becomes enough. Um, you know, again, policy is one thing. Um, getting personal with politics, you understand, right? Like there's big boy pants to wear. You know that. But at the same time, when people feel threatened in any context, whether it's physically or online, um, it's wrong. And, and we got to step up and say so and do a lot more than just say so. 100 percent. And for me, it's uh, you can disagree with public policy, but for our healthcare workers who have already been through so much and our healthcare leadership to intimidate or bully them, it's just, it's just wrong. And, and we had a case yesterday where our medical officer of health, um, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, who has been on the right side of history on a number of these yeah. key responses to COVID-19, and he's doing his weekly COVID-19 briefing uh, that he does with me once a week, and he has protesters um, uh, targeting him specifically. And, you know, I, I just think there should be an appreciation for our healthcare workers and healthcare leaders like Dr. Lowe. Um, the last thing that uh, I think is fair is to ha- is a situation where they have to re- where they require a police escort to leave their professional obligations. Yeah, it's rather outrageous. And I said so about the premier as well. Look, um, you, you know, people can be on this side of the political fence, that side of the political fence. People's privacy is their privacy. Their rights to not be intimidated or harassed are uh, certainly extend uh, way, way, way past their driveways. Um, right is right and wrong is wrong. Yeah, and and sometimes um, you see it on the Internet where there's just ugly hate, but it, you know, it goes to another level when they you know, try to block or intimidate or, or, or bully. And it's unfortunate because I think 99% of the public um, understands that, uh, you know, we need to take a different approach, but it's just unfortunate that you have that 1% that, that really um, leave an ugly taste. What should we do with regard, what would you like to see done with regards to, you know, chasing some of this down and making people accountable for words, accountable for threats? Is there enough of that? I, I know, I know we could, we could, you know, flood law enforcement with this complaint and that complaint, but if people feel physically threatened, that's, that's, you know, that's a line too, too far to cross for many. Well, one thing we did uh, locally in Peel region is our Peel region council passed a motion prohibiting um, protests at the hospital. You can yeah. go across the street and protest, but you're not going to block people from entering the hospital. Um, because at one point, you know, there was concerns that healthcare workers would be blocked, but also, you know, uh, individuals visiting loved ones who are being cared for in the hospital. And so and that was one starting point to say there are places you can protest and there are places that you can't where it's not appropriate. In terms of the intimidation that we see of, of some of our healthcare leadership, you know, I, I'm not sure how you can root that out other than simply being very clear that it's distasteful, that it's, it's not welcome. Um, there's always going to be idiots in, in society, but, but I think um, if larger voices speak up and say, you know, 
they don't reflect us. You know, when I was talking to Dr. Lowe yesterday, I think he was touched by the fact that, you know, he may have had some people screaming at him in the morning, but throughout the day he had um, individuals telling him that they appreciated the work he he did. And I think it was a reminder that, uh, you know, these are uh, more extreme voices. Um, Our council actually passed a motion yesterday after what we saw, thanking him um, for his service in in Peel Region and thanking everyone in, in public health. You know, at the beginning of this pandemic, we had no idea how this virus operated. And, and, and we had public health workers who were unvaccinated themselves at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, taking great risks to go out there and protect our long-term care homes, protect the most vulnerable. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they did so, you know, for the most part of the pandemic, not knowing the, the, the risk that they, they, they had on themselves. And unfortunately, we're in a position now where, you know, the large portion of, of society is vaccinated and, and our healthcare workers are all vaccinated. But, you know, there were some serious risks they faced for their families um, at, the, at the beginning of this pandemic. And so I think we need to remind individuals that they sacrificed, they took risks for us. And, and, and at the very least, you know, we should have a debt of gratitude. 100 percent. Got to have their back. Have to. Um, your region has been rather remarkable. Patrick Brown joining us, by the way, on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You're at 89 and a half percent first doses for 12 and over. And and if the rhythm goes, as as we're seeing, I was looking at numbers in the States yesterday. They've had three weeks of five to 11 vaccinations. Patterns are following. Vaccinated parents are getting their kids vaccinated. Unvaccinated people may not not be. But this should tell everybody out there, uh, Mayor Brown, that what was going on in your region in Feb- February, March and April was about essential workers. It was about lack of access. It was about lack of vaccinations, because when the vaccinations became readily available um, and, and I don't think access has been a problem really many places since late in the spring, certainly all summer long, your region stepped up and and uh, a- as as much as anywhere in the province has. Yeah, you know, people jumped at uh, at vaccines, and one of the one of the reasons I think people were eager to get vaccines in Peel Region is they saw the consequences. You know, it wasn't that long ago in the third wave when our hospital was overflowing. We were sending by air ambulance a hundred patients a week out of our hospital because we were overflowing to other hospitals around the province as far as away as Windsor and Niagara, um, which is just think about it, staggering, 100 patients a week um, that we had to send out of our own hospital. Um, and so that was a huge toll on the community. You know, there was fatalities. Uh, you know, every family knows someone that got hit pretty hard by, by COVID-19. And so when that protection came through the vaccines, you know, there really wasn't hesitation because people had seen the consequences of COVID-19 so clearly in in Brampton. And, you know, one of the best cases for why to get vaccinated is you look at the hospital today and greg it's largely empty yeah it is um, yeah and it's empty is because we have a largely vaccinated population you made comments about um masking had to having to put a mask on your toddler son for uh, like a soccer camp a soccer soccer training soccer practice and it really resonated with a lot of our listeners we played it the next day and people couldn't believe it um it, it's your kids aren't eligible for this particular vaccine but I'm sure you're encouraged that as as the 5 to 11s move forward, once communities become more vaccinated, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's exactly what people in Peel Region have been able to do. And that's, for the most part, go and get their lives back. You know, I did speak to Dr. Lowe, but that I asked you know, <laughs> if I've got two children under five, you know, what are the risks for those under five? And his response was what they found is that there are very, very few severe cases of COVID-19 for that age cohort where they're seeing a lot of transmission right now is, is 
the children who are going to school and seeing other kids and, and involved yeah. in lots of activities. And so, you know, he, he felt uh, that if we get this last cohort in the population vaccinated, we're not going to see a level of transmission in the community where you're going to see a lot of people at, at risk. Uh, but, you know, certainly when my children are eligible to be vaccinated, I will uh, absolutely uh, take them to get to, to, to get vaccinated um, whenever Health Canada says that it's, uh, it's safe and appropriate to do so. Mayor Brown, thank you very much for, for uh, st- standing up, doing the right thing. You constantly have throughout this pandemic. I appreciate you coming on the show with me. Uh, thank you so much, Greg. Here's the polka dot door theme. I heard it last night. I couldn't get rid of it. It was in my head for four hours. If I have to suffer, you do also. That's how the show works. Here it is. The polka dot door, the polka dot door. Let's peep through the polka dot door. Songs and stories and so much more. Through the polka dot door, this is the time we always say. Get ready, get set for Imagination Day. We'll tell some tales, we'll pretend and play. So come in the polka dot way. That's it. That's a hit single right there. You start with the chorus. You got a flute bed in the middle, like right out of Jethro Tull. Um, and it works. I, I like on, That's a hit song. That's CanCon. May, that was worth every Ontario tax dollar imaginable spent on that in the late 70s, early 80s. Bruce, Ars, Bruce Arthur joins me now from the Toronto Star. You know I like annoying you. You know I had to play that before you came on. You know I had to put that in your head for the rest. Not even the Detroit Lions later today will be able to get rid of that earworm for you. I'm not sure if it's better or worse that I have pretty much no conception of oh, you're a BC kid. This was a huge I, I, mistake. I, you're a BC kid. This was a big BC. mistake. Well, right. So, like, uh, <laughs> friendly giant, check. Uh, Sharon Lewis and Bram, check. Um, Re- Relic and Jesse like, on the Beachcombers, of course. Oh, actually, quick aside, I auditioned for the Beachcombers once because I was very briefly in an acting program when I was 13 years old, and I wound up <laughs> auditioning for the Beachcombers for the role of Silicon Smith, who was Relic's nephew and a computer hacker. And I lost out. I got to the final round of auditions, and I lost out to a kid who had been on Airwolf and Danger Bay. And not only did he get to play Relic's nephew on The Beachcombers, but there was a sequel episode where he came back. And this is one of the great sliding doors of my life. What a punk. I'm on IMDb for The Beachcombers right now. Do you remember his name? Uh, hold on. If you just <laughs> Google Silicon Smith. Silicon Smith? That was a nickname? That was the nickname. See, the episode Jeez. is called Silicon Smith. And Silicon Smith and the Wall of Death. Death. Yes. Um, the kid I've been on the show. Not Cameron Bancroft. That's a famous person. That's not who that is. What What was the character's name? It was Silicon. J- Jason, Jason Micus. Yeah. Are you joking? He looks like a clown. There's no. You shouldn't have lied. Born in '72, he was in Dragon Tales. Something called Devil Kings. You're a lot of. He was in Ernest Goes to School, Bruce. That could have been you in '94. Uh, this grand festival of a life that i could have had but instead belongs to him well you're but you but look you get to you get to throw you know fastballs down the middle on covid and sports and the intersection of politics and sports and this dude was just in earnest goes to school you got a lot more to hang your hat on a ton I more about, i don't even know how you can say it. he was I, in just earnest goes to school 
Yeah, I know. But those are iconic films. He'd have insight as to whether Jim Varney, the late Jim Varney, was actually nice to because sometimes you meet your heroes, right? And we've all been there and they're kinda they're kinda jerks to us. So maybe Jim Varney was nice and maybe he wasn't. We don't it's like like you you've seen the John Mul- uh, Mulaney thing about Mick Jagger, right? Is he nice? No. <laughs> some some people are not uh you know what then again as he put it if you're mick jagger and you've lived that life for 50 years nice is is, is, a, is a relative term like if people are kissing your butt for five straight decades and you're playing to stadiums a hundred times a year you got a different de- definition of being nice i suppose it's the same reason jack Nicholson wears sunglasses so never <laughs> look anybody in the eye um we just had joe cressy on and he mentioned uh, i had I, I wanted to ask him about Kristen wong tam i know you had opinions on it last friday um did all of this get resolved look again have all of us been flawless perfect um uh, but there were people really concerned on the weekend that um you know and and she needed to get out in front of that clarify it and the big problem was the sentence that vaccinated people can spread the virus similarly to unvaccinated people that's one of those absolutely pushed aside myths that's been debunked over and over and over again by evidence. Well, and and that was one of the big problems. I I still think the heart of the piece was about minimizing the impact of anti-vaxxers on society and, and the, and the problem that happens with that. Like Mm -hmm. the thing we forget that we're in a bit of a fog of war. I say this every week about Mm -hmm. COVID when people get severe COVID, they go, they, a certain number of them wind up in the ICU and they're there for a long time. And the, re, the result of that is people pile up and it eventually chokes your ICU. And thank goodness we're not in that position now. But remember in Ontario, we put 900 people in the ICU. And so the, the anti-vax community, we're going to get to maybe, let's say, 90 percent of 12 pluses in this province. That will leave approximately 1.3 million Ontarians who are unvaccinated and more than 12 years old. And the question is, honestly, how long does it take the virus to find them and how many of them wind up in severe difficulty in the ICU? And so, like, when she says, when she uses that talking point, though, when she publishes that in a newspaper that unvaccinated and vaccinated people spread the virus the same way, I start to wonder what kind of rabbit hole she fell down. And I think I have a pretty good idea because you can find (sighs) this denialist stuff in so many bad faith um, I don't want to say scam, but there's a lot of people pushing this stuff and it's dangerous and it's wrong. And so that really was the problem. If she weren't the coach, the vice chair of the Toronto Board of Health, it would have still been a problem because she's a public figure in a position of, of prominence. That she was the vice chair of the Toronto Board of Health told you that, I mean, I think it's pretty well established that more conservatives fall prey to anti-vax propaganda than progressives. But in this case, progressives can too. Anyone can. You just have to get better sources of information. Yeah, there is that. Um, We're talking, uh, and I mentioned it off the top, um, I know you've quoted him, and listen, he's been on our show. Again, I think he's done far more good than any sort of bad, and the bad may be just differences of opinion. But Dr. Uni documented plexiglass, and I Again, I think the science table's a little late here to the party. This is some of what David Fisman, Dr. Fisman, was critical of the science table for, is not getting out in front of stuff. When he's talking about plexiglass now, you and I have gone into stores. I know you wrote about plexiglass in Japan at the Olympics, and you're like, how ridiculous is all this? And I just, to come now and say, well, plexiglass might be doing more harm than good, yeah, we could have used that information seven, eight months ago. Could we not have? Yeah, I'll say this, though. When, you, when you're criticizing the science table in this province, remember, none of them are getting paid for this, right? This is a volunteer organization. A lot of them are doing the work off the end of their desk. This, is my, this was my problem 
with what David, who I greatly respect in a number of ways, yeah. with what David said in the summer. One, it was categorically wrong based on everything I was told, and not just from people who were at that time on the science table. Uh, the, the government was not suppressing modeling. I'd like to point out that the modeling turned out to be a lot more complicated than maybe we thought in late August. The other problem is these people were burnt out. There were people who were threatening to quit the science table, not because they didn't believe in the mission, but because it was really a lot to do for two years without getting paid. And so, yeah, you can you can argue that they should get ahead of a whole lot of things, but they released like a brief on that, that doesn't really affect your, your life or my life, but affects how people treat people with with uh, with COVID this week. Do, are we talking about that? No. Like uh, the thing with ventilation, and this has become a bit of a bet noir, and I, and, I, and I don't disagree with it for David Fisman and for a certain group of scientists. Yes, we should consider this airborne. I've basically considered it airborne since the beginning of the pandemic yeah. when a choir in Washington State, 30 people got infected and they were sitting in a room and singing like this is this should have been established the idea that plexiglass is a real barrier what it is is a barrier to ventilation ventilation should be one of the most important words going forward in our entire society is how buildings should get built it's how everything should be planned ventilation should be the key because not only is it better in terms of covid it's better in terms of everything so let's just do that and so i i honestly i i'm a little bit surprised still that this is an argument I don't think it's as much of an argument as people think. I think that it's not everything about the disease. It's just the vast majority of how it spreads. And it is important to realize plexiglass isn't going to save us. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star, I guess. Yeah, I think, you know, Dr. Bogosh was on with us last week and he kind of said the same thing. He's like, look, there's overlap. And in, if everybody ends up wanting the same thing and we just disagree on principles of, well, this should be closed, this should be open, this and that, that's fine. But yeah, this this the, there shouldn't be a, a airborne versus nobody's thinking, you, you know, that this is, well, you didn't wash your hands enough. Nobody's thinking, well, um, you know, I got too close to this person. And, and this goes back to where we are with masks. Of course they help. Of course they do for people like you and me there's just great variation in terms of how much they help but until until we get a little further along and kids can get vaccinated because that's where the majority of of spread is right now is that five to eleven population and, and hopefully that changes 12 weeks from now well on the idea of masks if you go across europe and look at the stringency of kind of what they've done and the vaccination levels by country so some have a higher vaccination level than canada some lower some more stringency some less Go ahead and look uh, across Europe, and it is terrifying. France had its biggest one-day increase since April. Italy had its biggest one-day increase since May. Germany had its biggest increase that it's ever had. Its cases per 100,000 per week were over 670. Like, that's a crazy number for an entire country. Switzerland, biggest one-day increase. A lot of these countries dropped masks. Austria has one of the worst epidemics of anybody, along with Slovakia, in Europe right now. And they dropped masks. It's a, it, it, like, so they, you're right. It's not The mistake we make is that when you say a mask will help you, you don't say a mask is a, like a bulletproof shield, right? We're not carrying around Captain America's shield when we wear a mask, but we are lowering the possibility not only that we will interact with the virus in a bad way at all, but that even if we get the COVID while wearing a mask, it's been shown that the, the difference in your viral load That's right. can actually impact how sick you get. So it actually, it's a little bit of protection. They, they've shown this graphic over and over. It's the Swiss cheese, right? If you have one piece of Swiss cheese, you're not that 
you're not that protected. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pieces of Swiss cheese in your yard. Yeah, that's right? what that's so why I struggled with the Dr. Kwong quote last week, and we had him on. I wanted to clarify, and he did. And I'm like, you 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 don't want people walking away going, well, a mask is as important as a vaccine. Not even close. Not even close exponentially. No, it's it's in some ways the easiest. Like the, what, again, this goes kind of goes back to the beginning of this conversation a little bit. What we have to figure out in Ontario right now is how we are going to protect our hospitals and how we are going to protect the maximum number of people. Yeah. So um, this aspirational timeline that we're going to start taking the vaccine passport off in January, and that, that was one of about 15 things that this government has done to basically embolden anti-vaxxers and say, just hold out the winter and you can live. That's right. So we now have the second or third highest proportion of unvaccinated 12 pluses in the country, only behind Alberta and Saskatchewan where misinformation extends all the way to government. And that is a problem and so we're going to need masks, not even to protect vaccinated people, to protect unvaccinated people. We're going to need boosters not just to protect vaccinated people, but to protect unvaccinated people. We're going to need vaccine passports. Again, the more the virus, like people who are vaccinated can get the virus. They yeah, can. yeah. And, but the thing is, the virus is, not, is almost not a danger at all to them in terms of serious illness. It's a danger to the unvaccinated. And again, 1.3 million Ontarians, they're going to get chewed up at a much higher rate by this virus. That's it. And yeah. that's the question. And fully, listen, fully vac- parents got to be ready for this. I think you are. I am. Fully vaccinated kids will, in certain circumstances, pop positive. It's no reason to panic. It does not. It, 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 it will be rare, but positive cases will happen because c- cases just aren't. Pl- they're, they're not being reduced by anything. Bad outcomes are. Hospitalizations are. Four or five other uh, terrible things are. I got to go. Do the Lions get their win today? Uh, <laughs> you know, Barry Sanders was my favorite running back. Yeah. Um, like my favorite running back ever. I get sad when I think about him. And why? <laughs> Detroit Lions. And Calvin Johnson. When two guys like that say, you know what? Enough's enough. Enough. Take your $7 million. I'd rather not wear your uniform. Two in the same organization in 10 years? Something's wrong. Something's wrong when that Maybe happens. Maybe a pattern. Maybe a pattern. Thanks, Bruce. Great stuff. See you, Brady. All right, on the show on Toronto Today Now, with it being U.S. Thanksgiving Thursday, uh, an old friend of mine, and I put that old has quotes around it, but he's the co-host <laughs> of Stoney and Jansen with Heather on 97 won the ticket. You don't say the point. It's just 97 won the ticket. And he's on the same time as me. So how are we doing this? We'll have to let you figure that out. But from Detroit, he is Stony Michael Stone. It's great to have you on in Toronto. I think we did this two years ago exactly around Thanksgiving. And Matt Patricia had the team pointed in a whole new direction. And Matt mm-hmm. Stafford would retire a lifelong lion. What happened? Uh, what happened was Pat Patricia alienated everybody, <laughs> became a horrendous coach and Stafford said, I've had enough. I don't want to be part of a rebuild. So please get me out of here. Here's where I want to go. And they acquiesced and they turned down, I think a better deal than the one they got, but that's just me. Though you and I have watched uh, games in the, uh, probably the Silverdome press box, the Ford mm-hmm. field press box featuring the likes of uh stony case, Mike McMahon, uh, former co-host of the Mike McMahon show you are, but that's eight people will understand what that's, that is. That's right. That's right. With Coach Marty calling in. I don't know how that was happening. Um, and that's a different world uh, now that we live in. But is this the worst quarterbacking matchup, um, Stoney, that we've seen at a Lions Thanksgiving game? Maybe all the way back to 1934 before they invented the forward pass. 
I don't know. I know one Thanksgiving. I don't know who the other quarterback was. I'm sure Rusty Hilger started for the Lions. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's right up there. Before mentioned Mike McMahon, I mean, he wasn't much better. I'd have to go and, and check. You know what? I, I, since I have a, yeah, I might have to check that out. Sure. <laughs> so you know how this works. Um, I, every year this comes around and every year uh, people say, why do the Lions get this game? Why, you know, when you and I were together early days, I mean, I think it was Lamar Hunt when he was still alive of the Chiefs said, this isn't right, that the Lions and Cowboys get these games all the time. And then they they kind of, speaking of acquiesce, they added a third NFL game, which will get Bill Saints tonight. Not so bad. No one's complaining about nine hours of NFL football. No. But um, but there is that resistance, isn't there? It, we, we didn't hear about this during the good Barry Sanders years or the, even no. the Wayne Fonch years. Like it, there was an entertainment value to having right. Barry Sanders yeah. on your television for 12 years in a row. But they do say it now, don't they? they that, that, that argument's cropped back up again. Not as much as I, I, I anticipated for this year. I remember, I don't know how many years it was when he was still working with Golick, uh, Mike Greenberg of ESPN, <laughs> who basically was on this bandwagon about it. Um, but you know what? I, I Look, the Ford family, say what you want about them, how inept they are. They are a very loyal organization. They're good, they're good for the NFL. And uh, the Ford Motor Company does spend a, a lot of money advertising. So, Look, the, the team, as, as you know, is so bad, and every team has to be on national television at least once. So, give us our Thanksgiving. It's part of it's part of. There are very few traditions left in sports. Give a sorry organization one thing, and maybe one day they'll be relevant. I don't know, but it used to, you're right. You know, it used to be. You know, you talk to people. Hey, at Thanksgiving, I remember waking up as a kid watching Barry Sanders. Now it's like, uh, and we went through this streak where. Like it's, I don't know if it was every year, but, you know, Brady came in and they blew him out and Peyton Manning came in and Michael Vick came in and they were just blowouts. And now it's just, I mean, there's been some epic Thanksgiving Day moments with Jim Schwartz challenging a play that uh, <laughs> was not allowed to be challenged. So they lost a penalty on, on that. They had, I think the last time they won on Thanksgiving, well, no, they had the one game where they played the Eagles and Calvin had three touchdowns, Calvin Johnson. That was good. They had the game against Minnesota where the Lions tied the game with like 40 seconds left. They went like 98 yards to get a field goal to tie it. And then Sam Bradford of the Vikings threw an interception that Slate picked off. And then Stafford took a knee and Prater hit a field goal to win the game. I think that might, those are some of the great, you know, recent Lions Thanksgiving Day moments. But they've had some, you know, we're going to see a, a quarterback duel that, you know, I'm sure the, the Bears wish they could bring Trubisky back because he owned the Lions on Thanksgiving. So did Chase, so did Chase Daniel, I believe, one year beat the Lions on Thanksgiving. I think he did do that. Yeah, I'm, I, I, it's it's a remarkable scenario. And the Lions now sit and this can't be happening because you mentioned Matt Stafford earlier. They went 0-16. Your gift is Matt Stafford. And, and, that, and they got to a couple playoff games, albeit on the road, um, and, and had some level of consistency. But they're 0-9-1 now. I look at the schedule, and I see the Bears. I see this game, because uh, I think Minnesota's better than we all thought. This looks like their most obvious win. Greg, do you, does your yeah. you know, audience realize, I mean, there are, you know, you know this, obviously, but there are so many people who are enamored with statistics, and, you know, some are, you know, fascinating stats throughout any sport. You know, Will Chamberlain, 100 points in a game. Cy Young, when he went 511 games. To me, the greatest sport, the greatest, excuse me, stat in sports history is right now. They've won one playoff game 
since 1957. The, I mean, even the Leafs have won playoff games. Well, they haven't been out of the first round since. So, like, not getting out of a round when you when you spend to the cap every year. Um, in you know, the fascinating thing will be if the Red Wings rise up and win a round of the playoffs before the Leafs do again. That will be fascinating. That that would be incredible. I think the Leafs will (laughs) around this year because whatever. But seriously, though, you know, you want to make the comparison. the The Lions are the Leafs. Only the Leafs are ten years. You know, sixty seven as opposed to fifty seven with their last title. I think about those teams and I think about the Knicks, but that's not fair really because the Knicks did go to the NBA finals in 1994 and, and were sometimes the second or third best team in all of the NBA. They just happened to, I think they take, this is a great thing to do for really nerdy stuff like you and me, The, the six teams that the bulls beat in the finals from 91 to 93 and then 96 to 98 Take the Knicks that year. The Knicks probably win a few of those titles in those. I think they're better than Portland in 92, and they might be better than Phoenix in 93. They just they happen to have to play the Bulls every year. Right. And, you know, the Utah was pretty damn good those years, though. But yeah, you're you're right. And then the Knicks, by the way, I think is the most overrated franchise in sports history because it's the garden. And I know it's mm-hmm. electric atmosphere and all that. But I mean, historically, they stink, too. And that's in New York where you can't rebuild because you're in New York. Well, maybe you should have thought about that for you know, once in the last 30 years. Maybe you would have done better. So when I move here, I mentioned we worked together quite a long time. Detroit's on a real, uh, you know, high, a real apex with sports. And, oh, and yeah. I, I came here and I would say, oh, my gosh, when I when I worked there, when we worked together, those glory years, WDFN, the Wings won three Stanley Cups, Michigan, right at the end, Michigan with Woodson and Greasy. A football national championship, Michigan State basketball national championship, Pistons win, uh, Tigers go to the World Series. Finally, the Tigers were the were the you know the right. weak sister of all of them, and then in 06, they go to the World Series. So when I move here, um, Roy Halladay gets traded, Chris Bosh leaves, goes to Miami, Matt Sundin leaves to go to Vancouver to play one year. But now in Detroit, you tell our listeners what the last five or six years have been like. It is like people will ask you probably all the time and they call you on your show and go, where's the hope? What do you say to them? There, there was, there was no hope for five or six years. You were hoping you'd get lucky in a draft or, or do something. You had bad players, for the most part, bad managers and coaches, bad general managers, bad. Everything was bad. I mean, we call it now rebuild. I call it rebuild city. <laughs> uh, now the Pistons say we're, we're, we're restoring. We're not rebuilding. The Lions at least finally are admitting they're rebuilding. So every team is on a rebuild. And, you know, in, in sports trivia, uh, sports trivia, sports talk radio parlance, uh, you know, who's the next Detroit team to win a championship? And the answer, unless the Pistons can get like a generational player with the number one pick in the draft, which Kate Cunningham's going to be okay. He's going to be mm-hmm. good, but he's not a generational player. Um, it's probably the Tigers. Because they have these young players, Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson, who are going to be really good, especially Green. Uh, they have a good young pitching staff. They have a great manager. Who knows if they'll get Correa or not, but they, they seem to be on the right path. Uh, the Pistons are still a ways away. The Lions are, who the hell? I mean, they're going to have the number one pick in the draft, and there's no quarterback that you want to build your franchise around coming out of college. And the Wings seem to be on the right path, but it's still going to take a while. I mean, you know, as you know, Cider and, and mm-hmm. Raymond are terrific but they're still a long way away. There's Mike Stone. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We are back with a live show to wrap the week, 5.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. 
tomorrow. Hopefully you can check us out for a few segments or more than that. We do appreciate it. And you spreading the word on the show. We're seeing that you are. And thank you again for downloading this particular podcast. Feel free to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your listening.